Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true through every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how would God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounding in his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Father, we open ourselves up now to this word and to what you have been working in these days. And we ask you to protect us from anything misleading or biblically imbalanced or unfaithful. And I pray, Father, that you would protect me from error and us from inattention to you. I pray for those among us, Lord, who are on the fringes of the kingdom or far from the kingdom, who look inside and are not sure they see what they want or what is true. I pray that clouds of confusion and falsehood would be blown away this morning and that the glory of God would shine clearly out of the Word and out of history and that Jesus Christ would be manifested and would be standing forth from His Word with such clarity and such truth and such beauty and such winsomeness that all could see that He is who He says He is and believe. Establish Your people now, Lord, in this Word I pray, and glorify Your name. Through Christ I ask it. Amen. Last week I walked us through these eight verses trying to trace the argument of the Apostle here and to get our minds into his mind and then fit the meaning of verses 1 to 8 into the bigger picture of Romans 3. And I don't want to do that again. Instead, I'm going to do something I haven't done for the 11 months now that we've been on Romans. I want to step back and ask, given the fact that God has moved the Apostle Paul to write like this, what did he unleash on the world and in the church and in our culture by 
inspiring paragraphs like that. Now, the question you should ask at this point is, why are you doing this here? Why, why didn't you do it earlier? Why aren't you doing it later? Are you going to do this again? What's the point? Why here? And let me give you a couple of answers to why I'm stepping back to pose this kind of question here on this paragraph. I've been listening to a tape, two tapes this week by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached on this text, and I was listening to his sermons, two of them, on this text 40 years ago in London. It's a great thing to be able to listen to preaching that was preached 40 years ago in London. He began his two-part series on this text by saying in his gruff and inimitable British accent, which I won't try to imitate because you would all laugh and it wouldn't be real. This, he said, I find to be probably the hardest text in the book of Romans and perhaps one of the hardest in all of the Bible. And I said, oh, good. That makes me feel a lot better because I struggled tremendously two weeks ago and before. I've been working on this text for 25 years and find it incredibly difficult to follow the train of thought and to understand the connections between the verses and why he's speaking the way he's speaking and how it all hangs together. It's hard. And so I'm prompted to ask, Lord, why? If you really inspired the Apostle Paul, as he claimed that you did, and I believe that you did, why did you inspire him to write such a hard paragraph to understand? What's the point of pieces like this in the Bible? What is this kind of writing that's so hard to understand unleash in the world? in culture, in history, in the church, in my life. I thought, perhaps when I said this, somebody might think, well, you know, Pastor John, if you're having that much trouble, maybe your problem. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you need to repent of some sins in your life or humble yourself before the Word of God or pray more fervently or seek the Lord more so that light would shine and you wouldn't have to struggle so hard and think so much about the flow of the thought in this text. And I hear that and I feel chastened by that observation because I don't doubt that there's some of that that's true. However, what brings me back to the comfort level a little bit, though I, I, my main goal is not to be comfortable with myself, is Second Peter 3... 15 and 16. Remember what Peter says there about Paul's writings? I'll read it to you. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him. Now, that's a very important phrase. According to the wisdom given to him. Not according to his own human wrought out wisdom, getting us all mixed up with a hard argument. He says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him wrote to you and also to in all his letters in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable 
distort. And they do also, as they do also, the rest of the Scriptures. End quote. Let me point out four things there, real briefly. Number one, he says that Paul is writing from a wisdom given to him by God. In other words, he really believes that his fellow apostle is an inspired spokesman of God. He's not an ordinary human genius who just writes intellectually provocative and perhaps true or sometimes false things. Rather, he is speaking from wisdom given to him by God. Secondly, he says, like the other scriptures. So, owing to the fact that the wisdom is coming down from God and carrying Paul along in his writings, they are therefore in the category, Peter says, with the other scriptures. So they are part of now what is becoming a bigger Bible than the Old Testament. And thirdly, he says, there's some hard things to understand there. God is a perfect communicator because he's perfect in everything. And he inspired Paul to write things that are hard to understand. So I'm just kind of sitting there on Saturday banging my brain against my desk saying, why? What, what am I to understand? Not just from the meaning, but the fact of it. You see the difference? I'm not asking what the meaning of the text is this morning. I worked with that last week. I'm asking, given the fact that it's hard to follow, what's the meaning of that in history and in the church? And the last thing to observe, the fourth thing to observe there in Second Peter is, this is an apostle talking. This is Peter talking about an apostle. Apostle talking about an apostle. And therefore, it's not just any old person who says this is hard to understand. And so when I find it hard to understand, I feel like I'm in good company. That's my first reason for asking this question at this point. This text is hard. Here's my second reason. The first two verses of this text look to me almost like an invitation to think this way. So let me read it and see if you are prompted this way. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? His answer, great in every respect. First of all, so now he's going to highlight one big thing, and he's going to wait till chapter 9 to say the, less, the rest. First of all, that they, the Jews, were entrusted with the oracles of God. And, and you stop and you linger over that and you meditate and pray over it. And what bubbles up from that meditation is something like this. God says... One of the highest privileges on earth is to possess this book. To have the oracles of God accessible to us. And they are oracles of God. They're not just feelings of God. They're words that get written down in the Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, David. And in the New Testament the apostles, so they come to us in a book. This is a precious advantage to have been given access to the very oracles of God. The mouth of God has spoken. The prophets write it down. We get it preserved for us in a book. This is an awesome thing. Therefore, would you not then be inclined to ask when you bump up against an oracle that is hard, which this oracle is, to say, if this is such a high privilege and such a wonderful treasure, why did you do it this way? Don't you know children are going to try to read this book? 
I remember a time in Germany. I was there for three years in Munich. And uh, for a year, about a year, wasn't quite a year, I taught at the military base Bible uh, to a Sunday school class on Sunday morning while I was learning the language before I went to a German church, which I did about nine months after I was there. And uh, I remember one morning, and the fact that I remember it shows how emotionally hard it was for me. I was doing my best with some difficult text in Galatians. And one woman got very agitated with me. It's a big circle of maybe 30 people or so. And she, she said, why do you ever always make things so difficult? Don't you know the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand? And I didn't want to offend her. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to make it hard. I was just finding it hard. And, and I said, you're right. You're right. The gospel is simple enough for a child to understand. There are simple passages and there is accessibility to God. Not everything is hard, but... I find this hard. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. So to this day, this has weighed on me. Why are there hard things in the Bible if God is a good communicator, He's a loving God, and He means for people to understand who He is and know Him and love Him and trust Him and follow Him, and yet we bump up against these texts? Why? So that's what this sermon is about. Just why? What kind of impulses are released on the world by a book that has a lot of paragraphs like this in it. That's my second reason. It looks to me like verse 2 is sort of beckoning me to think about this. So here's my answer. I'll give you four answers. Then I'm going to step back from the four answers and I'm going to try to balance it out because these answers are going to all be tending in one direction that if you took them by themselves would be very imbalanced. So I'll close by trying to bring it back and balance it up a little bit. Okay. What did God, in doing it this way, unleash in the world and in the church and in history? Answer number one. He unleashed desperation. That is, a sense of utter dependence on God's help and enablement. I see this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, for example, where it says, A natural man, and what the Bible means by natural man, is a person without the Holy Spirit. What we are simply by human nature. So we are fallen, sinful, finite, fallible, and blind, resistant, rebellious creatures, unless the Spirit has come into us, brought us to a place of compliance towards the Word of God and trust in His promises, we are resistant to God. And so the text goes on and says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now a man like that, hearing the gospel or some other paragraph in this book, should feel desperate. Because he knows that given the way I am, if this is true, I can't see it. I can't feel it. I'm not going to respond positively to it. In fact, I'm resisting it. And because I regard it as foolishness, I'm blinded to its true meaning. Now, 
once the Holy Spirit begins to work on John Piper, brings him to himself, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, begins to write the law of God on me, endears me to Jesus Christ, gives me a faith in Him so that I begin to recognize reality for what it is. I'm no longer kicking my heels against this thing. There still remains a lot of sin in me. And my finitude and my fallibility. Therefore, even though I may not now be the natural man... I'm still a fallen, sinful man, saved by grace. And it's not surprising to me, therefore, that I will bump up against texts and still find them hard to understand. And therefore should feel desperate. Oh God, please, if you don't help me, I'm not going to be able to penetrate through here. Which leads me, I'm already into it, my second answer to the question. First is desperation. And then comes supplication. Because I feel desperate, and you feel desperate, we pray. Isn't that what you do when you feel desperate? Ever been in a desperate situation? Car accident? Trapped on a mountain? Storm coming in? Swept out by the toe in an ocean? Foot? finger caught like mine was when I was 14 in the grate at the bottom of the pool because I was trying to pull it off and caught my finger down there. (laughs) It was bad. It was bad. And the Lord gave me my finger and my life. I would have chewed it off, I think, but... um, There is desperation in life, and one of the places is before the Word of God that we long to understand, need to understand, and don't understand. And therefore, our response to desperation is supplication, Oh God, oh God, help me. And I think of texts like Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your Word. Seven times in that Psalm 119, seven times in Psalm 119, we read, Teach me thy statutes. Now, this is a godly psalmist crying out to God, I've got your statutes in front of me. Moses wrote them. Other inspired writers wrote them. And I don't understand them. Teach them to me. Please help me. Psalm 25, verse 5. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. So one of the things unleashed on the world through inspiring hard texts was desperation and another is supplication. I really wonder. I mean, ask yourself this. Here I am on a Friday afternoon and a Saturday morning and afternoon trying to prepare for a message And I can't figure out the text. I don't know what the words mean. I don't know how the clauses are connected. I don't know how this text fits together with that text. They don't seem to fit. And I'm supposed to preach this in about 24 hours. How would you feel? I wonder if you and I, if everything were clear as crystal and easy enough for a seven-year-old, would pray. Oh, God. Oh, God. 
Open my eyes. Remove my sin. Take away my rebellion. Give me light. Without you, I can't get it. And if I can't get it, I can't preach it. And if I don't preach it, they won't hear it. And if, I don't, if they don't hear it, it won't grow. So I think one of the things God is doing is making all of us who care about the Word desperate from time to time and prayerful. Desperation, supplication. Here's the third answer to the question, what is God up to and what is He unleashing in the church and in the world? I had people at the end of the last service hand me notes for other words I could use here. <laughs> so I'll give you mine first. Mine is cogitation. Cogitation. I don't like the word cogitation. I think it's ugly. I don't like the sound of cogitation. So I was going to say, if you don't like it, try meditation. But meditation doesn't have the right connotations that I'm after. So they offered rumination. Not bad. You choose your own Asian word. I'm only using these sounds to help you remember them. You don't have to use them. Here's what I mean by cogitation. When God inspires a biblical writer to write a text that is difficult to understand, he means for us to be desperate and dependent on him. He means for us to cry out to him. And then he means for us to think hard about the text and try our best with all the helps at our disposal to understand what it means. Think Hard. Think hard. Ask questions. Look up words. Read other wise people. Pose questions about how this word relates to that, that word and that clause relates to that clause. And this one down here fits together with this one and this all fits together to make the whole flow of the text. Think hard. Now somebody might say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting me mixed up because it seems like you just said on point two, supplication, that we are to cry out to God for understanding. And now you're telling us we're to break our brains trying to get understanding. So which is it? Do you ask God to give it or do you work to get it? That's a legitimate question. And the answer is given in 2 Timothy 2.7. I'll read it to you. Where Paul writes to Timothy like this. He says, Think over what I say. For the Lord will grant you understanding in everything. He will not let us make that choice. He won't let us split these two things apart. Like, do the prayer thing or do the study thing. He says, no, 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 no. Think over what I say to you, Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding. Evidently meaning through the thought process of your working hard over my language here. So the third thing that God unleashes on the church and the world when he inspires hard texts is desperation, then supplication, and then hard thought. He means for us to, to work at it, to cherish it, to search for it like silver and, and to quest for it and cry for it as for hidden treasure. Proverbs chapter 2, cogitation. Here's my fourth one. 
You got it in your head yet? You know where I'm going? There are at least two that I've left out. And people came up and reminded me that I left them out. They said, you didn't say exaltation. And you didn't say application. So, be forewarned. I'm not going to say those two. And they are important. But I can't say everything. I have a goal that I'm after here. And the one I want to say is education. If it takes hard thought, and God wills for us to apply our minds to understand His Word and work hard at all the texts, especially the hard ones, then we have unleashed upon the world in and through this book an impulse towards training young people and old people not only to pray earnestly, but to read well and think hard. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. That the call to think hard and think clearly and think faithfully is an impulse unleashed on this world through God's inspiration of difficult clauses. This is a remarkable thing, and it needs to be thought about profoundly. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Timothy, what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able, able or sufficient, to teach others also. You got four generations in that verse, don't you? Paul writes to Timothy and says, I delivered you something. You take what I delivered you, you, you're number two, and deliver it to those, teach those, so that they may be fitted, able, sufficient, that's three, to teach it to others. That's four. You got four generations in that little verse. So I sum it up by saying, when God unleashed words, clauses, participles, nouns, and verbs, and logical flows of sequential reasoning on the world through the inspired scriptures, He unleashed an impulse for generation after generation after generation after generation of education. Education didn't come out of nowhere. The impulse to train the mind to deal with difficulties and reason and think didn't just come from nowhere. It came from God through His Word. At least if you're looking for a good warrant for it, that's the best. Desperation, supplication, cogitation or rumination or meditation and flowing from that a whole equipping enterprise so that people can do that and do it well and do it faithfully generation after generation called education now let me sum it up before I turn to this balancing effort I mentioned 
What I'm looking for here and what I'm seeing is that in, in choosing to reveal himself through a book, words, 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 clauses, structures, in doing that, and some of them being difficult and challenging, God has unleashed in your life, your family, the church, the culture, Western culture, and other cultures that are being penetrated, and history, these kinds of things. Wherever Christianity has gone, the Bible has gone. And wherever the Bible goes, there's an impulse to translate the Bible, right? Into other languages, lest we be paternalistic. What could be more paternalistic than to take the gospel to a group of people who don't have the gospel in their language and say, well, we got the book, and you spend the rest of eternity letting us transmit it to you. Far more humble would be to say, we came into possession of the book 1,400 years ago when the gospel arrived in Europe, say, or 1,600 years ago in Britain. And they translated it into Anglo-Saxon or whatever, and we became Christians. And now we've had it for a thousand years, and we would like to share it with you, and we'd like a thousand years from now, if God doesn't come back, that you would have developed a thousand years' worth of thinking in your own language with this Bible like we've had the privilege of doing over the many years. I'll tell you, when Bible translation is unleashed, it not only unleashes a, a word, it unleashes all the impulses that it takes to get translation done, and that is no small intellectual undertaking. The, the translation enterprise is huge in its demands upon the mind. A little in anecdote here about Wycliffe. We got Wycliffe folks who are out from this church. Interesting thing about Wycliffe. Wycliffe, interestingly, is the second biggest mission in, in the Western world after the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission, I believe. And it will take into its enterprise people out of college with very little, if any, theological education or training in linguistics. So you go from college down to SIL, take a few weeks or months of SIL, and they'll ship you off to get going on some language somewhere. So you would think, okay, Wycliffe then probably is an institution that's made up of a lot of BAs, right? Not a lot of MAs or PhDs or MDivs or whatever, but in fact, Wycliffe is the highest educated mission in the world. Now why is this? The reason is simple. They'll take people where they are with a modicum of training, stick them in these impossible situations, and then teach them education is not a little thing you do after college, it's a lifetime. So get what you now see that you need. And so the typical Wycliffe person, like Steve, will take 11 years to get his PhD, for example, in linguistics. Because he'll work in the tribe and in the village, there in Cameroon, for two, three, four years, come back, take a year, go to UCLA or USC, I forget where he got it, somewhere in Southern California, and back and forth, back and forth, because he's there saying, I've got to figure this out. He goes, and there's only one man in the world who knows this language. He teaches at USC. And so he, he's working there. 
and back and forth. And so over time, the educational level rises. Well, where'd that impulse come from? Romans 3, 1 to 8. And all the other hard passages in the Bible, plus the challenges of translation, plus the challenges of linguistic, plus the challenges of literacy. So you translate the Bible and nobody can read. Wycliffe has learned a lot about literacy. He worked for 20 years to get the Bible into the language, and you find there's 18 people that can read this language because they don't even have the language. So you got the, now you've got to undertake literacy enterprises. You've got to teach people how to read. So everywhere the gospel has gone, schools have gone. This is no accident. And when you start reading, you bump into hard text. You have to think. And the harder you have to think, the more difficult and broad become the issues you deal with. And pretty soon you don't have grade schools anymore. You've got higher education. Colleges don't come out of nowhere. Universities don't just get created because it's fun. There are impulses flowing into culture from God about the importance of dealing with difficult, important things. You start thinking about those things at higher levels and you start writing about them. And such is the birth of scholarship. When you start writing about them and putting them down, you want to preserve them. And such is the birth of libraries. When you have libraries of things that have been written out by hand for a thousand years, you think there's got to be a better way. And you get a printing press, and you're into the modern world. There's a lot unleashed in the Bible, a lot of things unleashed. Now I want to, I want to draw this to a close with a balancing act here. Because you see where I'm off on? I'm off on the education side. I'm, I'm leaning hard towards the intellect. I'm trying to show that the Bible and the hard pieces within it, inspired by God, unleash, quite apart from just the sheer meaning of the text, which is a glorious gospel of salvation by grace through faith, which is the most important thing in the world, to know Christ and to be saved and to have eternal life. The sheer inspiration of difficult descriptions of that unleashes the impulse to read, the impulse to think hard about what you read, the impulse to train people to do that called education, the growth of education into higher levels of learning, the preservation of those things in writing, the establishments of libraries, printing presses, and the whole enterprise comes from these kinds of impulses. Now, I've got to balance that. Because that's not the whole of the Christian life, is it? We all know that. How should we balance this? And I thought to myself, now how can I say this? I want to close by setting things right here so we don't walk out stilted. And here's the way I want to do it as we close. I want to say, God is love and God is God. So just keep those two phrases in your mind. 1 John 4, 8, God is love, God is God. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is none like me. Now, if you take those two truths, realities, they, through the Bible, unleash in the world different impulses. And I want to sum those up as we close and see if this looks like a balancing to you. 
that God is love unleashes the impulse in the world of simplicity. And that God is God unleashes the impulse of complexity. That God is love unleashes the impulse of accessibility. And that God is God unleashes the impulse of profundity. That God is love encourages a focus on the basics. That God is God encourages a focus on comprehensiveness. The one says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Acts 16.31 The other says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20.27 That God is love impels us to be sure that the truth gets to all people, the simplest and the most educated. And that God is God impels us to be sure that what gets to all people is the truth. That God is love unleashes the impulse toward fellowship. And that God is God unleashes the impulse toward scholarship. I wonder if you understand that. Hard study which is the birthplace of scholarship, good scholarship, is lonely business. It's lonely business. You cannot do serious thinking in groups. You can have your thinking refined in groups, but to think hard, pen in hand, and write out your answers, you've got to be alone. And therefore, fellowship and scholarship, while not opposites, are in tension. That God is love tends to create extroverts and evangelists. That God is God tends to create introverts and mystics. That God is love helps foster a folk ethos. And that God is God helps foster a fine ethos. What do I mean by that? One ethos, folk ethos, revels in the intimacy of God, for example. It revels in the intimacy of God and it sings softly. Lord, don't you sing this with me? Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. A simple. 
real simple. Simple tune, simple words. Because God is love and He wants to be intimate with you. And that God is God unleashes another ethos. The word fine is probably not the best word for it, but you might remember it in relation to folk. And those who are gripped by this impulse revel in the transcendent majesty of God. And they lift their voices with profound exultation, far, far above thy thought. His counsel shall appear when fully he the work hath wrought that caused thy needless fear. Leave to his sovereign will to choose and to command with wonder filled thou then shalt own how wise how strong his hand. We'll sing it to close in just a minute. Those are not the same ethoses. They aren't the same moment of experience with the living God. But they are both from God. So, closing. I wonder what you are thinking and feeling right now about those impulses. I wonder if anybody is saying, I don't like this choice. I don't like being forced between these two. I don't like this, what you set up here. This God is God, God is love, and this and this. this. I, I, don't, I don't want you to put this bifurcation on me between simplicity and complexity between accessibility and profundity, between fellowship and scholarship, evangelists and mystics, folk and fine, love and godness. I don't like that. To which I respond, good. That's what I was hoping you'd feel. Because if you're content to say, you're right. Those are two impulses. And our church is this one. Wrong. My whole passion is to say, all of this is precious. All of this is precious. All of this is valuable. We as a church should not allow an axe to cleave these things in our congregation, in our souls, in our children, in our families, in our worship. And that's what I was hoping for. So let me just tell you what I'm praying for you. First, believers, I'm praying that as you hear the impulses that flow out of God's mysterious inspiration of easy and hard, as He manifests His love and His profundity as God, as you hear these impulses, You'll just gather them all in. Just gather them into your family. Gather them into your heart. And I'll tell you, every one of you is leaning one way or the other. I'm leaning one way. You're leaning one way. Nobody's hovering in the middle here. You're all one way or the other on this. And my plea to you is, if you're leaning one way and you look back at this other crowd over here, love them, affirm them, and want them 
and grow toward them. And if you're over here, you look in the other way, love them, affirm them, bless them, and try to get inside your heart the bigness of God, the variety of God, the wholeness of majesty and intimacy, simplicity and complexity, accessibility and profundity. Try to grow into that so that we're one as a people. And unbelievers among us, my prayer for you has been, I, I don't know what impact this sermon might have on an unbeliever here. There are always unbelievers here, every service. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that sometimes people are kept from faith because of caricatures and stereotypes of God, His people, and Christianity. And so my prayer is that as I've tried to, to paint the bigger, broader impulses that have flowed out from God into the world, that maybe some of your caricatures and stereotypes would just collapse. And then maybe you could see God for who He really is, and the Bible for what it really is, and the church in all of our imperfections for what we really are, and believe. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.